Hello, and welcome to Matt's Music Class, the podcast for learning to understand music. I'm Matt W. Dayton, and today we're taking a short detour from our regular lessons to take a focused look at a couple songs that I think are absolutely brilliant, and so I'd like to share them with you, and just why they're so great. So for each song, I'll play an introductory chunk of the full rendition, then I'll take a magnifying glass to a couple of structural elements and play and discuss them out of context, so we can hopefully see the shapes of the song's building blocks, and the moments when they fit together to become the bigger picture. And hopefully that process will give you a few concrete things to listen for as I play the whole song from the beginning again. So I'll start with the first verse of Cole Porter's super clever, You're the Top. It goes something like this. You're the top. You're the Colosseum. You're the top. You're the Louvre Museum. You're the melody from a symphony by Strauss. You're a Bender Bonnet, a Shakespeare sonnet, you're Mickey Mouse. You're the Nile. You're the Tower of Pisa. You're the smile on the Mona Lisa. I'm a worthless check, a total wreck, a flop. But if maybe I'm the bottom, you're the top. Now, before talking about the music, I have to at least point out the sheer virtuosity of wordplay, the rhymes, the cultural references, and the sequence of wild metaphors for the concept of the top that is also rather integral to the greatness of this song. I mean, we've got Colosseum with Louvre Museum, Melody from a Symphony, an internal half rhyme, uh, Bendel Bonnet and Shakespeare Sonnet, Strauss with Mickey Mouse, The Nile and Tower of Pisa with The Smile on The Mona Lisa, Worthless check, total wreck, and only after all that crazy mixing of high art and ancient architecture with popular cartoon and pecuniary cliches do we get a rhyme, flop, for the title of the song. But if baby I'm the bottom, you're the top. It's practically Shakespearean in its juxtapositions of highbrow and lowbrow culture, and that's before we even notice what's going on musically. The first great thing to notice about this melody is how tightly and logically it's constructed in the service of playful cleverness. So first, we get this little idea, and then it repeats and expands, sort of jumping around that same target note. Then we get the same idea and its expansion, just starting on a lower pitch. And now that we've been set up with a 1 and a 2, the same little idea starts out at an even lower pitch, but suddenly mutates into a zigzagging run back upwards. And for me, this is the best moment of the melody. When I first heard it, I was like, oh, that's really satisfying. It's so good. But then I thought, why does that string of notes feel so delightful? I think the answer has to do with two things. The first is that this punchline starts out with that same opening idea, starting low, of course, and immediately grafts onto it this idea, which is a delightful surprise not only because of its quick timing, but also because it's like the antimatter particle of the same opening idea. The opening idea goes down a step, step down. and up a skip, skip up. and this interrupting answer goes down a skip, skip down, and up a step, step up. 
The technical term for this kind of inside-out reversal is the retrograde inversion, but of course you don't need to know that to appreciate how good it feels when it comes in here, and then goes up higher. The second thing that makes this a great melodic moment is the way it interacts with the harmony underneath it. Up until this point, all the melody notes that come on strong beats, and thus get emphasized naturally by the meter of two, are pitches that fit smoothly with the chord going on underneath. In other words, they're consonant with their respective chords. So to demonstrate what I mean, I'll count the meter of two and emphasize the notes that land on one, while also playing the chord underneath each one. But when the antimatter kicks in, the strong beat notes in the melody always clash with their underlying chords, like this. So all of a sudden, the beat hasn't changed, but it's now naturally emphasizing all the dissonant notes in the melody. And then this same sort of reversal from consonance to dissonance is actually encapsulated in the one note hopping idea that completes the punchline. That one note starts out being consonant with its first two chords, consonant note. but then the melody refuses to move while the chords go to a different area, and the same note becomes dissonant because it's so obstinate. Same note. So that reversal of the opening idea that suddenly starts emphasizing dissonant notes instead of consonant ones is one thing to listen for and relish in this song, and especially when you hear the second half of the verse, Try to notice how just some slight modifications get the very similar punchline to do its one note hopping conveniently on high do. Once again, we're on just one note, but it's do. Thus ending with a sudden reversal back to consonants. The other thing to listen for is the piano accompaniment's great little rhythmic punctuations that harmonically guide the melody through its transformations. So now let me play you the whole song, which is in strophic form, meaning that when the melody reaches its conclusion on the high do, it repeats the same music with new but always clever and entertaining words. Before the regular verse, there's an introductory section that gives us a bit of context for why the singer is about to start singing this particular song, and having this kind of introductory section to a song that doesn't repeat but is just there to sort of set the stage for the main verse and possibly refrains of the song is a practice that comes from opera, where it was a conventional thing for many centuries to start every number with introductory patter or a prose-like monologue before the so-called aria begins in earnest with some sort of repetitive verse-like structure. In the opera, they call that intro section the recitativo, and Cole Porter's recitativo here is as charming and delightful as the rest of the song, so enjoy that. And then the verse's melodic journey will happen a total of four times, giving you several chances to catch those molecular mutations and harmonic punctuations while trying to keep up with all the 1920s pop culture references. Here it is. But if this ditty 
is not so pretty At least it'll tell you how great you are You're the top You're the Colosseum You're the top You're the Louvre Museum You're the melody from a symphony by Strauss You're a pendant on it, a Shakespeare sonnet, you're Mickey Mouse You're the Nile You're the Tower of Pisa You're the smile On the Mona Lisa I'm a worthless check, a total wreck of flop But if baby I'm the bottom, you're the top You're the top You're Mahatma Gandhi You're the top You're Napoleon Brandy You're the purple eye from a summer night in Spain You're the National Gallery, your Garbo Salary, your Solo Fame you're sublime, you're a turkey dinner, you're the time of the derby winner. I'm a toy balloon that is fated soon to pop, but if baby I'm the bottom, you're the top. You're the top, you're a Ritz hot toddy, you're the top, you're a Brewster body. You're the boats that glide on the sleepy Zydersee. You're a Nathan Panning, you're Bishop Manning, you're Broccoli. You're a prize. You're a knight at Coney. You're the eyes of Irene Bordoni. I'm just in the way, as the French would say, Detroit. But if baby I'm the bottom, you're the top. You're a Berlin ballad You're the nimble tread of the feet of Fred Astaire You're an O'Neill drama, you're Whistler's mama, you're Camembert You're a rose, you're Inferno's Dante You're the nose on the great Durante I'm a lazy lout who is just about to stop but if baby I'm the bottom, you're the top. Isn't that brilliant? I think so. Now, speaking of melodic inversions, although J.S. Bach is probably not the first name one would tend to associate with Cole Porter, it turns out that the clever use of melodic mutations is at least one thing these two musical geniuses have in common. So I'd like to show you how Bach uses a similar strategy of melodic inversion in this little Invention Number no. 1 in C major. Here's the opening section. Now you probably noticed right away that this is a completely different sound world for several reasons. Cole Porter uses a texture of melody and chords while Bach just has two lines of melody, one for each hand. And Cole Porter's rhythms have a lot of syncopation, meaning emphasized notes happen in between beats, while Bach's rhythms are mostly on the beat. But if you look at how they construct their melodies, they're really playing the same game here. Bach's opening melodic idea is this. 
We then immediately hear the left hand echo the same idea on lower pitches like this. And then the right hand having leaped up to do some hopping on high notes while the left hand was doing that echo repeats the same idea again way up high here. And as you might expect, the left hand echoes just as it did before. So we've heard this same idea four times, twice from each hand, so let's call it the theme. And in order to get the theme to stick in your ear, I want you to try actually singing it, or at least audiating it, which means singing it in your mind, or using your imagination to produce the pitches in your mind as though you were singing it without actually vocalizing. So I'm going to sing and play the theme again, and I want you to actually try singing it back as an echo, or at least echoing it in your mind. Here it is again. So now, as we've learned to expect from doing lots of melodic analysis, it's time for the melody to change things up. And how does it change things up? It actually repeats the same theme, but in mutated form. Take this theme, keep everything the same except reverse the direction of all the intervals. So every time it would go up, go up, up, up down. make it go down by the same amount. Go down, 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 up. And you've got the inversion of the theme which the right hand gets to do four times in a row, getting just a bit lower each time, like this. And the left hand just answers that long run of inverted themes with the theme in its regular form again, before the right hand does its inverted theme one last time, and immediately extends its zigzagging part to build some excitement, and finishes up its acrobatics with a flourish and a cadence, which is the musical version of a period new paragraph. So, setting us up with several repetitions of the opening melodic idea, then suddenly changing things up by the clever use and repetition of the same idea but inverted to move with more excitement in the other direction, and building excitement towards the melody's final flourish by reiterating one little chunk of the theme, This is a general melodic structure that gave Cole Porter just as much satisfaction as it gave Sebastian Bach 200 years earlier. So those inversions and reiterations, sometimes in the right hand, sometimes in the left hand, of this one little melodic idea is one thing you should listen for in this song. You can kind of track the progress of this theme like it's a character in a story. The other thing you should listen for is what I think is the best moment in this song, it's kind of like the climax right before the denouement begins. For most of the song, the right and left hand sort of take turns playing the theme versus these little hopping notes. And if you listen to them together, you'll notice that usually when one hand is playing these fast toddy rhythms, the other hand is always playing larger ta rhythms. And so the two hands almost always fit together like this. 
But there's one little moment, it's very quick, so if you blink you'll miss it, where the two hands' trajectories bring them to the exact same note. The right hand gets to it like this, while the left hand goes like this. And together they will land on that one pitch, E, in the middle of the keyboard. Now, normally this kind of momentary unison of the two melodies would be unremarkable, but in this case, that brief unity becomes like a lightning bolt moment, because all of a sudden, for the first time, and never again in the song, the two hands play rhythmically together, note for note, all on those quick toddies. So this rhythmic unity has the effect of thickening the sonority for just this one passage, and it's a place where the left hand is just doing the inverted zigzags like normal, but the right hand goes a little wild with a few spicy leaps in here. And once they finish this run, they never come together again. In fact, the denouement has them get even more separate by having one hand just hold a long note while the other hand plays the whole theme by itself. So listen for the theme and its inversions, and enjoy that lightning bolt moment where the two hands play the same rhythms at the same time for only that one time in the song. Here's the whole thing from the beginning. Well, I hope you've enjoyed hearing these pieces, and my favorite parts of them, as much as I've enjoyed sharing them with you. The next regular episode of Matt's Music Class is taking a bit longer than anticipated, but hopefully I'll have time to finish that and put it out soon. In the meantime, please remember to support the music and musicians that you like. If I'm one of those, you can support me by rating and reviewing the podcast, and you can even donate a couple bucks to the podcast on my website, mwdaytonmusic.com. That's it for me. I'll catch you next time, and happy listening.